Hi, this is Brent White. Welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following message on October 1st, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church, and I'm continuing my sermon series on uh, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And I'm highlighting the five core convictions of the Reformation. In today's sermon, I'm talking about grace alone, that we are saved by God's grace alone. I begin my sermon by talking about just how costly God's grace is, and I relate it to pictures of grace in the Old Testament, pictures of grace which may make us uncomfortable when we realize just how costly it is. I want us to appreciate the costliness of grace because when we understand what God has done to save us, that should inspire a great deal of love within us. I want us to fall in love with God and fall in love with his son, Jesus. I hope this sermon helps us do that more and more. Our scripture today comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which I'm going to read now. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Today I'm preaching on the third of the five core convictions of the Protestant Reformation. We celebrate the 500th year of the Reformation this October 31st. And perhaps one reason why Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, the first of many reformers to the church, um, held this doctrine of salvation by faith, by grace alone, by grace alone so dear, is because when he was a young man, a young Augustinian monk, his conscience bothered him terribly. And he wanted to know the answer to the question, how can we know for sure that we will be saved? And unfortunately, the the message that the medieval church communicated to him, and they had detailed theology, backing up what they were saying. The message they communicated to the young Martin Luther was the way that you can know that you're a child of God and that you will one day be saved, that when you die, you won't go to hell, but you'll go to heaven, is if you do your best, you can know that God will save you if you do your best. 
Now, there is some sophisticated <laughs> theology underneath that message. It's wrong, but, you know, they had theologians who would argue why that was the case. Well, this did not make Martin Luther uh, feel any better because he knew that he was at any moment utterly incapable of doing his best. He knew his own heart. He knew how sinful he was. So this message to do your best never satisfied him. And so when he dug into the scripture, he was so grateful to hear the words that you just heard. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is by grace only not of works, so that no one can boast. I am going to begin this sermon with two pictures of grace that come from Scripture, from the book of Genesis, in fact. Now, when you hear them, you're not going to think they sound very graceful, but they are typical of the Old Testament, okay? I could find dozens more examples, but I'm just going to focus on these two. The first comes from Genesis 15. God has called Abraham. God has taken Abraham outside to look at the stars in the night sky. This was the days before light pollution. And when you looked up, you could see thousands, literally tens of thousands, I suppose, of stars in the night sky. And God told Abraham his descendants would be as numerous as those stars in the sky. It would take a miracle first, but God was going to do it. God was going to bless the world ultimately by sending his son Jesus through Abraham's descendants. And God was going to make them his people, the people of Israel. They were going to have a covenant with God. And Abraham was going to represent Israel in making this covenant with God. Now, what happens next in Genesis 15 might sound strange to our modern ears, but people living back then would have understood it because this is how they ratified a covenant. God tells Abraham to take a heifer, a female goat, and a ram and to cut them in half and to spread their, the pieces of their carcass out so that a person could walk in between the two halves of each animal. I know this sounds weird. <clears throat> then the Bible says, when night came, God appeared to Abraham as a Uh, a, a flaming torch and a fire pot, some kind of fiery vision. And this fiery vision, which represents God, passes in between each half of the animal carcass. Now, what does this symbolize? It's as if God were saying, may I become just like one of these animals. May I die like these animals. May my blood be shed like these animals. If I fail to live up to the covenant that I'm entering into today, if I fail to keep my promises, that's what God says to Abraham. And we should expect that what happens next is Abraham would also walk in between those carcasses. But he doesn't. Only God does. You see, God was assuming responsibility for both sides of the covenant. 
If Israel breaks the covenant, God was saying, I am going to suffer their penalty for them. That's grace. Here's my second picture of grace from Genesis 22. God commands Abraham to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice the most precious thing Abraham had ever known, his beloved son. Or perhaps I should say the second most precious thing Abraham had known. Because as Abraham demonstrates, God is more precious to him than even his beloved son. How do we know? Because he's willing to obey God, even though God is asking him to do something that seems impossible. And as Abraham raises the knife to slay his son, God, of course, intervenes and tells him to stop. But there still will be a sacrifice. God produces for Abraham a lamb. There is a ram whose horns are caught in a thicket nearby. So Abraham, God uh, wants Abraham to slaughter that lamb and offer it as a burnt offering. That's grace. So what's my point? Each, both of these examples are examples of God's grace. In each example, God offers a gift that these humans, because of their sin, do not deserve. Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, were sinners who would break covenant with God time and again as the as the tragic history of Israel in the Old Testament bears witness. Yet ultimately, it was God who would pay the penalty for their disobedience. He would become like one of those sacrificed animals in the person of his son, Jesus. And because of our sin, God would do what he ultimately prevented Abraham from doing. He would Offer his own son, Jesus, as a sacrifice. What does John the Baptist say in John chapter 2 when he sees Jesus coming toward him for the first time? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus would become that sacrificial lamb for us, for us sinful human beings. I hope it's clear that both of these Old Testament pictures of grace points toward the cross of God's son, Jesus. Grace is free to us, but it is infinitely costly to God because it cost him the life of his very son, requiring the precious blood of his son, Jesus. We know the hymn. Sing it with me, if you will. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. I attended a friend's wedding one time. He was Catholic. And in their tradition, unlike our Protestant tradition, they don't have empty crosses in their sanctuaries, do they? No, they have crucifixes. And uh, at this wedding, uh, there was this ghastly, bloody pulp of a body hanging from the cross in the sanctuary. It was startling. It was, it was frightening in a way. Uh, unlike many of you, I never saw Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, but I've seen pictures from it, and, and it's so brutal and gruesome. And the, the pictures from that movie looked like this crucifix hanging on the wall in this sanctuary. If those uh, uh, Christians in that church ever sang nothing but the blood of Jesus, they would not forget the deeply painful and costly and bloody price that God paid to save us. Brothers and sisters, may we never forget that Jesus' ugly, bloody body hanging on the cross is the very best picture of grace. It's so brutal. It's so gory. We can hardly stand to look at it. But that is grace. When I came to this church many years ago, there was a, a, a tagline that appeared often underneath the, church, the church's name or above the church's name on bulletins and literature and business cards. Do you remember what it was? It said, Hampton United Methodist Church, a place of grace. I like that. That's a great message. I hope our church is a place of grace. Just so long as we don't forget that the ultimate place of grace was that hill called Calvary where God's son Jesus gave his life. It's bloody, it's costly, it's ugly. We can hardly stand to look at it, but that is grace. Amen? There's nothing sentimental about God's grace. It's infinitely costly. It's the most precious thing in the universe. We shouldn't speak of it casually. We should not treat it lightly. We should not presume upon it as if to say, of course God is going to show us his grace. That's just the sort of thing that God does. God does not give us his grace because because he's nice. And that's just the sort of thing that God does. He gives us his grace because he loved us so much to send his son Jesus into the world to die the most ugly, brutal, awful death imaginable to experience hell on our behalf. It's only through the cross that this grace that we we too often speak so casually about is made possible to begin with. And why was this blood, this violence, this suffering of the cross necessary in order for God to give us his grace? Because of the deadly, serious nature of our problem. Paul says we are by nature children of wrath. We are are children who deserve nothing but, but punishment from God for our sins. Paul describes our human problem in these first three verses. And the main thing that he communicates is that we are dead. 
By nature, we are dead. Now, of course, we're still living physically. What he means is we are dead spiritually. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 1 says. Dead, mind you, not sick. I was talking to Buddy Voigt before the service. Buddy was terribly sick last week when I saw him in the hospital and he, and he was feeling worse before I got there. But, but he woke up on Tuesday morning and he was feeling dizzy and he knew something was wrong. He was sick. And even though he was sick, he, I mean, he was able to, to tell his daughter, I need to go to the hospital. <laughs> something something is, is wrong here and I'm not able to solve it, but, but there's a doctor there, I'm sure, who will be able to treat me and and help me to feel better. And it turns out that, that uh, it was uh, related to his diet, so that if he eats these certain foods and avoids these certain other kinds of food, he's going to feel much better, as, as he is uh, this morning. But you see, he's sick, but he still has some control, even if his control consists of telling someone else that he needs to go to the doctor, right, or go to the hospital. You still have some control when you're sick. You, you, you agree to allow a doctor to treat you and, and make you better, Obviously, if you're dead, you can't do anything to help yourself. Do we know, do we really know that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins? If we don't, if we don't know that, then we will start to perceive grace as this light thing. In his commentary on this text, N.T. Wright illustrates this problem in an interesting way. He describes a, a, a real-life episode in the life of an English author whose name is James Harriet. Harriet says he was eating at a very expensive restaurant, and he had gotten finished with his meal when he realized, uh-oh, his wallet was at home, and uh, he had no, no way to pay for this expensive meal, and he was panicking. Well, it turns out that his good friend, Uh, his business partner knew that he left his wallet at home. And so his friend, who wasn't at the restaurant, called the restaurant and arranged to pay for Harriet's meal himself. So Harriet was found out that he was off the hook. His, His debt was paid. He was free to leave. That's grace. But Dr. Wright asks us to imagine a different scenario. Suppose that Harriet's good friend found out that he didn't have his wallet. So he called the restaurant. But instead of paying for Harriet's meal, he pays for a violinist to walk over to the table and play this lovely song as he's eating this meal. Wright's point is that we can often think of God's grace like that. Sure, God, I've got a few problems here and there. I've got some things I need you to help me out with. I need a little bit of help, a little bit of improvement to my life, a little bit of enhancement to my life. But then I won't have to bother you anymore. Just, you know, take care of these few little things that are wrong with me. But Paul's point in verses one through three is that God in Christ did not come to offer us help. He didn't come to improve our lives. He didn't come to enhance our lives. 
apart from Christ, we don't have life in the first place. We are spiritually dead even before we can say yes or no to God's gift of saving grace. God's got to do something to intervene to, to, to bring us to life enough so that we can even make the choice to accept this amazing gift. We Methodists call that prevenient grace. It's the grace that enables us to say yes or no to God's gift of grace to begin with. My point is there is nothing about the process of salvation about which we can say, aren't I special? Look what I did. No, Paul says it's not of works. It's not of anything that you can do. So nobody can boast. It's all God's grace from first to last. I've shared this with you because I believe that the biggest problem facing us as Christians, the biggest problem facing our denomination, the United Methodist Church, indeed, the biggest problem facing Hampton United Methodist Church is the same problem that Jesus describes in Revelation chapter two in his letter to the church at Ephesus. We have, in general, abandoned the love that we had at first. In other words, we need to fall in love with Jesus all over again. Even, the, even this budget shortfall, which you've, which you've heard about, we're not facing this problem because we're not generous people. By no means. Of course we're generous. If you don't believe me, think about a time in your life. Maybe it's now. But think about a time in your life when you were really in love with somebody. When you're really in love with somebody, guess what? Man, money is no problem. Money is no object. You would give everything for the person that you love. I'm not saying that would be a smart thing to do necessarily, but, but, but you'd be willing to do it because you're, you're madly in love with this person. You give generously. You give extravagantly because you're in love. What's mine is yours, you might say or think at least. My point is, if you're in love with Jesus, if if your love for him hasn't grown cold, then of course you'll give generously to him. And the means by which God has established for us to give generously is through this, his church. But you know from your own experience, despite your best efforts, your best intentions, love can grow cold. We can get so caught up in the busyness of life. We can become so distracted by all these worldly things that it's like we forget why we fell in love with that person to begin with. So for that reason, I want you to hear some of the most inspired, inspiring words ever written which are found in verses four through seven. This is nothing less than the greatest love story ever told. Are you ready? Listen, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I admit, I'm fascinated 
um, by the British royal family. The idea that you can have so much, so many privileges in life just by virtue of the family that you happen to be born into. I know there are also great responsibilities that come with it, but still, in a way, it's incredibly unfair, isn't it? That just by virtue of being born, you can have nearly all your needs met just for the asking. Last week, a video related to the British royal family went viral. You may have seen it. (laughs) Prince Harry was in Toronto watching... Uh, athletes with disabilities compete in a in a, a athletic event there, and now you can't see this in the picture. He's most of the time in the video. He's busy talking with this man that's sitting to his um, sitting to his over here to his left, and uh, then there's this woman who's the wife of an athlete that's on his right, and that's her uh, two year old uh, daughter sitting in her lap, and of course. Uh, The reason why it went viral is that you see as Prince Harry is talking to this probably important, uh, you know, man of the world or whatever, uh, he's not paying attention. And that child is reaching up and taking popcorn out of that box of popcorn that's in his lap. And of course, Harry discovers that this child is doing it and and, and is very happily lets the child uh, eat uh, his uh, popcorn. Um, And uh, part of the charm of this incident is that for most of us, it would be highly inappropriate to take something that belongs to the son of the next king of England. Of course, a little child can get away with it. That's why she steals our heart. Suppose Prince Harry didn't merely share his popcorn with this little girl. Suppose he shared with her his kingdom Suppose he said, I'm going to adopt you and your mother and father into my family so that everything that's mine now belongs to you. Everything, including my kingdom, is now yours. Because this is precisely what Paul is saying that Christ Jesus has done for us in verses four through seven. If you're a Christian That means everything that belongs to the son of the king, in this case, the son being Jesus Christ, everything that belongs to him is now ours. He's given us everything. Uh, What more do we need? What more could we ask for? And brothers and sisters, this is the foundation for our own happiness and joy in our life. If we want to be Reminded of why we should be so happy and so joyful. Let's look at this scripture. Let's read it over and over again. Let's not forget what our Lord Jesus Christ has given us. And let's be happy because of that. Tim Keller is a favorite preacher of mine. And um, he tells the story that it's not a story. It's a, it's a real life event. He, um, in his denomination, the Presbyterian church, he was on a committee that was responsible for approving candidates for pastoral ministry. And he was sitting on this committee one time and one of his, like the chair of the committee, uh, they were reviewing this one candidate and the chair of the committee spoke up and said, we, we need to not approve this person. And he thought this person was very well qualified. His 
academics were impeccable. He'd served all these different churches. I mean, what, what's stopping him from being a successful pastor? And this guy said, we shouldn't approve him because he's not happy enough. He doesn't, he doesn't understand this gift of grace that God has given him. Because if he understood this gift of grace, he would be a much happier person. And Tim Keller, in his own self-deprecating way, said that he wanted to get away from that guy as quickly as possible because he didn't want to be judged by him. Uh, But I mean, you, you, you see the point there. If someone could look at our life, what would they say about us? Would they say that we understand this gift of God's grace? Or would they say, you don't understand it because you're not happy enough. If you understood what God has done for us in Christ, you'd realize how happy and joyful you should be. Oh, dear God, make us make us happy knowing that our Lord and Savior Jesus has given us everything. What amazing grace that is. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider worshiping with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We're we're on West Main Street in downtown Hampton, Georgia. We have two worship services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 o'clock and a more traditional service at 11 o'clock. Hope to see you there.